but people would hear me on the phone, whether I was a teenager or now, and man, you sound like a white guy. I'm like, what does that mean? And I was their best friend over the phone, and then I would walk into a place for an interview or something of that nature, and they'd do a double take. Wow, this guy's black. And I'm like, well, what is a black guy supposed to sound like? Son, should you be stopped by a police officer? You do not move drastically. You don't do anything. You put your hands on that wheel, and the only thing you say is yes, sir, no, sir. And you answer every question in the most humblest, submissive way possible because I want to see you get home in one piece. If they want to do something, you let them do it. You don't do anything because they will shoot you and they will kill you. This is episode R056 of the Reboots podcast featuring the Reverend Vince Brown. Now, Vince spends his days corralling teens and staff members offering adventure therapy at a therapeutic boarding school in Mars Hill, North Carolina, called the Wolf Creek Academy. As the chaplain and program director, Vince sees kids on their worst days, and he gets to celebrate with them during their best moments. We'll talk with Vince about what it's like to be in a role like that, plus what it was like growing up with a dad in the United States Navy, and how and why life changed for Vince when the family moved from San Diego to Memphis in his youth. Vince and I also talk about why it's difficult for white people to understand the concept of white privilege and Black Lives Matters. And we talk about how learning to give the gift of grace can help heal our nation of racial injustice one relationship at a time. Let's get to it. Hey there, you're dialed into Reboots, featuring stories about people who have been forced to start over in life or in business, all walks of life, anonymous or named, high profile or low down, stories with heart, soul, and grit. Because knowing and sharing our stories is essential for living a life of joy, experiencing healthy relationships, and impacting the world around us in a positive way. Here's your host, Tracy Winchell. Vincent, thanks for inviting us into your life today. It is so awesome to get to talk to you. Thank you, Tracy. It's good to hear from you and speak with you today also. Yeah. So we met in July at a Celebrate Recovery conference, and um, I want to dive into a lot of different components of your story. But first, let's kind of set the stage. What's your life like today? I am actually the program director at a Christian Therapeutic Boarding School um, in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Western North Carolina. We deal with kids from the age of 13 to 18. Me and my wife do day-to-day operations here. I'm also the chaplain. That entails a lot of work and just a lot of recovery, not just for the student, but for the parents also. So we are empty nesters, so we get to work a great deal more. And I'm a happy-go-lucky grandfather of one right now. So five kids, one grandchild. So our life's pretty simple. I'm really interested in what a therapeutic boarding school is all about. You've shared the ages, but what all does that entail? A lot of therapy. We're what the industry would call intensive outpatient, an IOP. Parents 
privately place their student or their child with us. You might have ADHD, ADD, oppositional defiance. They've got a diagnosis of something. They send them here to us, minimum six months. Usually we hang on to them for nine to 12 months. We work with the family. We have therapists on staff. We have house parents on staff. Our, our school is kind of neat because we do what we call adventure therapy. We'll get the kids out, whitewater rafting, hiking, you name it, we're doing it. And right now, outside the office I'm sitting in, we've got the boys on the girls' property right now doing a traverse. They're going over a creek. They have to learn a little bit of teamwork. And they're pretty frustrated because they've been doing it for four weeks straight now and they haven't mastered it. So until they mastered, our adventure therapy director is going to have them keep on doing it. But that's what we do. They reside here with us. And each staff member has their own way of affecting a child. And it's, it's great teamwork. Some days are very stressful. Some days aren't. It's really great to see a kid break through. We had one young lady leave recently, uh, went to Grove City College. She's doing well. She's a freshman. And they've never cast a freshman as the lead. And she just stepped on campus starting this semester and won the lead for their play. Oh, and, wow. Uh, real proud of her. She's done awesome. I got chill bumps. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can see how that would be stressful because you're dealing with a lot of moving parts yeah. and, and in volatile situations even with kids and parents. And then your your staff there is constantly having to deal with volatile situations. Yeah. 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 I want to talk to you about your growing up years. You've had an incredibly interesting life. So – if I remember right, you were an Air Force brat, right? So you moved around Navy a lot? Navy brat. Navy brat, because you, yep. you've you've served in the Air Force. Okay. Walk me through that. What's it like to move all <laughs> over the world? It's kind of cool, especially when your dad is already rated, and you're the youngest member of the family, so you get the benefits of what your dad makes rate. Now, what does that mean? What, is it, what does it mean to me? Be Just rated? his rank, his experience. By the time I came around, he'd already had 20 right at 19 years in already. So I think he was an E7 when I came around. Met him when I was six months old. My mom was divorced. I was a little guy. She was a domestic abuse survivor. And she had me and my sister, who's four years older than me, uh, Wendelin. She met my dad over some barbecue ribs from two of their good friends. And he liked my mom quite a bit. And next thing you know, there he was. Best thing that ever happened to us. I get a little emotional. So growing up in San Diego, being born and raised in San Diego was pretty cool, awesome city. And it was a melting pot of people. Got to see a lot of things. Everybody else gets to watch Top Gun. I got to live it. I got to <laughs> run around the hangars and jump in the planes. And who else could teach you how to build bombs but your dad? That was pretty cool. He always separated the Navy from the household. When he came home, he'd take his uniform off and the master chief was no more. It was daddy. Taught me how to sail. Taught me how to fish, taught me a lot of things. Just an awesome man. Um, so my experience as a Navy brat was I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Some of the people I got to meet. Mm. And great education at some great schools. Got to live in a pretty diverse neighborhood growing up in San Diego. We had everything under the sun. And that changed a little bit when I became a teenager and took a transfer to Memphis, Tennessee. And that was a different different bag of wax, so to speak, going from San Diego on the West Coast to the deep south of Tennessee. It was quite interesting. 
You know, the first time that I heard your voice, I couldn't see you. You were speaking, and I had to be hearing the content of your words to know that you're black. Yeah. You sound white. Yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> what, what was that like, especially in Memphis? Do people treat you differently when they assume you're white versus when they see you? Oh, yes. Yes. I, I've got so many stories about that one. Um, just a little background. Both my parents are from deep Louisiana. My mother is Creole. So she and her family speak the French. So I grew up in San Diego, sounded like a surfer. And then I got <laughs> to Memphis and I picked up the Southern dialect. I had a little bit of the Southern dialect, uh, Louisiana dialect with my mom. You know, certain things she would say she could never pronounce the word orange. It was always orange. Vince, bring me an orange. Um, so we'd always tease her about that. <laughs> so all my cousins down south would laugh, dude, you sound like a surfer. So when I got to Memphis without the Southern draw, I picked it up. But people would hear me on the phone, whether I was a teenager or now, and man, you sound like a white guy. I'm like, what does that mean? And mm -hmm. I was their best friend over the phone, and then I would walk into a place for an interview or something of that nature, and they'd do a double take. Wow, this guy's black. And I'm like, well, what is a black guy supposed to sound like? Interesting story. My wife, who is Caucasian, you met her, Tracy, mm -hmm. blonde hair, blue eyed, the, her first Christmas party at her old boss's place. She was a paralegal for an attorney in Clarksville, Tennessee. Most of the customers or his clients that were at the Christmas party were shocked because I was black and had heard so much about me. And then I had interacted with some of them and they were very shocked. And then they heard my diction and they kind of like look at me twice. You can really tell what people's expectations are and how they judge you. And when they actually see a six foot black guy walk in the room, they're kind of like, whoa, okay, I wasn't expecting that. So I've experienced that a lot in my life. Well, and I bring that up because you alluded to the fact that when you moved to Memphis, things got interesting. And I know enough about your story to know that racism was involved. Would you care to talk a little bit about what happened in your teen years? In sure. I think the one big thing that has always stood out to me that happened in my experience in Memphis, don't get me wrong, Memphis is a beautiful city. It has its warts like any other city. It has been through a lot. I remember when my dad took the transfer, the first thing out of my mom's mouth was, I'm not going to Memphis. That's where Dr. King was killed. And I just remember that. Mm. Uh, my dad bought a house in all-white neighborhood in Memphis. And we were the first black family in that neighborhood. And I never forget one night I had gone to Campus Life at one of the cheerleaders' houses I went to school with. And uh, we were driving through the neighborhood. Coming back, I dropped a buddy of mine off who lived in a totally different neighborhood, a guy by the name of Maurice. He was a drummer, black guy. And I was coming back to our neighborhood. And I was in my pickup truck, which was, of course, registered to my dad. And a particular police officer who I did not know lived in that neighborhood pulled me over and proceeded to yank me out of the truck. Didn't check the registration, didn't check my wallet, yanked me out the truck. And... Um, put me on the hood of the truck and commenced to verbally assault me while he had both my arms back up. What the hell are you doing in this neighborhood? X, Y, Z, you name it. Um, I won't use all the choice words he used. And then he cuffed me, put me in the back of the truck, back of his car, ran the tags on the truck 
and realized that tags matched up to right up the street, probably about a block and a half up the street. And I said, I tried to tell you, I live in this neighborhood. My dad bought a house here and he was having none of it. Um, he turned me loose, but he told me if I ever see you doing anything in this neighborhood, you'll regret the day your daddy ever moved in here. And that was my first experience with the Memphis Police Department. I've had that conversation with all three of my sons. The oldest is 31, the youngest is 20, on what to do when a police officer pulls you over. If my father had not had that conversation with me and I would have acted in anger, I know something drastic would have happened that evening to me physically. So, um, yeah, that's that was my invitation of being in the wrong place and being black at the wrong time. Vince, I was in my 40s before I understood what that conversation is. Would you walk us through that? What, the conversation with my sons? Yeah. What is that conversation? Oh, that conversation. What, what, what is what? Yeah, what does that mean? I'm sorry. <laughs> that conversation is you pull your son aside and say, son, should you be stopped by a police officer? You do not move drastically. You don't do anything. You put your hands on that wheel, and the only thing you say is yes, sir, no, sir. And you answer every question in the most humblest, submissive way possible because I want to see you get home in one piece. If they want to do something, you let them do it. You don't do anything because they will shoot you and they will kill you. And I've never been raised in the ghetto. I don't know what it's like to live in the ghetto. I grew up in white America, and that was one of the first lessons I learned when I was about 12. So this would have been true in San Diego, just as mm -hmm. it is in Memphis. Okay. And I spent some time in Los Angeles with my cousins, too. Los Angeles is a different breed of city than San Diego, but it's known there, too. I have quite a few cousins. My uncles were all successful businessmen in, in Los Angeles at that time, and they understood the concept, too. So, yeah, that, that's the conversation I've had to have. And where I live at now is rural. Um, the sheriff's department here is wonderful. Uh, my son was the only black student at the high school here, the only black in his graduating class. And uh, the sheriff is awesome. He approached me and said, if any of my officers profile your son or yourself, I want to know. I have had a run in with the highway patrol here with profiling. And I never let my son leave the house, Tyler, our youngest son, without praying over him. That's the reality of I want to see my son home. Um, he just left us, moved out the house in uh, March. He's in Indianapolis, so um, he's a grown man now, but I still pray over him, not like I did when he was living here with us. It was a concern. Still is. And I have a seven-year-old, soon-to-be-eight-year-old grandson, so that's a concern of mine also. I knew the answer to the question you were sharing with me, but it still gives me chill bumps, and it troubles me greatly that my family never has that conversation with adult males to that extent. Right. Why, why is that? Why is that even necessary in your eyes? Um, because the system hasn't changed as much as people would like to say it has. It hasn't. Before my father passed, we had some interesting conversations. He was 83 when he passed. And, um, when a man who served his country for 30 years and then worked for the government after that says he's never seen it as bad as he has now. This is a man that grew up in the deep South and, and witnessed lynchings, you know, as a kid, I took that to heart. 
um, when he told me that. It's kind of a double-edged sword because we've become so sensationalized by the internet on some things and then desensitized in others that we just we don't really believe what we see there because there's so many falsehoods out there, but it still happens. And people are a lot more bolder now than I think they were previously. And I'm not just saying that for my almost 50 years of life, but that's from older folks that have been so, around. So previous to what? Previous to the civil rights movement. Okay. And some of the racism is more veiled. Like how? Well, black folks, you know, when you get around black folks, we'll talk about code. Oh, people will say certain things. You know, I don't care what side of politics you're on. Um, there are some things said about President Obama that were just, you're like, holy cow, I'm an educated black man. That's just racist. You wouldn't say that in the workplace to me, but you'll say it about the president. And like what? Um, your wife looks like a gorilla. Yeah. You had never seen a sitting president disrespected the way certain congressmen did at President Obama's first State of the Union address, just standing up screaming, you lie. That, that's never happened. There are also those who claim that our reform efforts would ensure illegal immigrants. This, too, is false. The reforms, the reforms I'm proposing would not apply to those who are here illegally. It's not true. Some of the falsehoods that were said about him, you would never hear that about a white president, but you would hear it about a black president questioning his legitimacy. Um, the whole birthright movement, that was interesting to black folks. Because we always have a joke, a lot of black folks have a joke that, you know, if you got an eighth black in you, you're black. That's the way society sees you. There's always the connotation that the stereotypes of black folks are, we're, we're less intelligent, we're all angry. We're all dirty. That stuff I've run into to this day, just some of the stereotypes, and they come out. And what the one thing I do love about the Obama presidency, it lets you know where everybody was on the race line. Mm. It brought some things out in this nation that needed to be brought out. And, you know, what's interesting is that now then there are people who say no one's been more disrespected since our current president. Hmm. I have to disagree with that one. I, I would. I mean, nobody's questioning whether Donald J. Trump is legitimately, you know, nobody questions him because of the color of his skin. You know, people would attack President Obama across all borders. But if I were to say some of the things President Trump would say, and I'm not trying to be political. No, I understand. I'd get fired. I would no longer be the program director at Wolf Creek Academy if I, I said some of the things my CEO will come in like Vince. You're not. You're not being a great representation of the values of Wolf Creek Academy. Bye. <laughs> Literally, bye. I know him well. He's my friend, but there are certain things he will not tolerate, even for a friend. He's not going to give up who he is before God. So, I think you have to be very careful and not have a sliding scale because God doesn't have a sliding scale for sin. And would you really want to put that in front of him? Could that? that sin exists in the presence of God or that attitude or that mindset exists in the presence of God. And I think you'd have to say no, but of course we're human beings and we like to slide the scale 
of what is acceptable and unacceptable, and we don't use God's scale. Yeah, it's it's like it's okay for one person to say it, but it's not okay for another person to say it, and mm-hmm. that's kind of what you mean by that sliding scale, isn't it? Right. But if we reverse the two and it sounds off, then there's a problem with anybody saying it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one thing. I have things in my life that I know would not exist in front of God. And I'm still working on some things. So I'm not trying to be a hypocrite because I know it says some things sometimes. And I have to catch myself and the Holy Spirit convicts me. But I just think people need to be real careful about how they say things. Is this based on factual information or is it based on a stereotype or preconceived notion? Yeah. Yeah. Me and my wife, I I think you heard the story when we were in um, a certain establishment in Nashville shopping. Um, which is ironic. I'm wearing the shorts I bought that night today. Uh, <laughs> that's ironic. Back at the CR Summit. And this young lady followed us all the way around that store. And it was just based on, I know me being a black male. And I fit whatever profile she had that I was going to steal something out of there. And I was kind of surprised in a city like Nashville. Because I, I used to live there. And I know Nashville is one of the most progressive cities in the South. And I love that city. And you really don't hear about race too much because of the way they established the metro government. They actually went to the black leaders in the community and said, hey, we want to bring the county and the city together, but we can't do this without you. We're going to give you a seat at the table. And I think that's one reason why Nashville has prospered so much. Mm. And it's the it city. The police department is culturally aware that they have all types of people come to their city to visit. I have a nephew that is a detective there on the police department. Wonderful young man. And um, but Nashville is a great city, but they have dealt with some of their issues from the beginning and decided this is what type of community we want. So I was a little surprised. I mean, you're going to find racism everywhere, but I was a little surprised. So you and your wife are shopping, enjoying a working vacation, as it were. Yep. And someone is profiling you, afraid you're going to shoplift something. Yep. Yep. That happened. So, <laughs> wow. So I want to step back to, to, to Memphis. Right. Because I want to make sure we share your story. Anything else that was different about the rest of your kind of teen years before you at some point joined the Air Force? Yeah, it was a racially divided city. You know, I, I remember dating one girl and her parents decided that if she didn't break it off with me, that the grandmother was going to disinherit them from the will. My family actually lived in a better neighborhood than they did. She's white, <laughs> Caucasian. It was amazing. I do know being in a predominantly white high school, and I love all my Raleigh Jaffaros, I didn't quite fit in with the blacks because of their mindset, and I didn't fit in with the whites. And I was kind of obscure with you know, the, the assumption that um, blacks should act a certain way. We should learn, listen to certain music. Um, that was from both sides. I will never forget um, our senior pastor. I grew up in the Assemblies of God. He had never been in a black person's home. I remember this. My mom, he kept bugging my mom about, fry me some chicken. I want some chicken. Fried chicken. 
And he came over. They had never been in a black person's house. You can just tell. And uh, it came so out. So how can you tell? Because some of the things they were saying, you know, you don't you don't sit there in awe. At, and this woman's house looked like something out of a magazine. My mother, I, I basically grew up in a house with white carpet. My mother was OCD before there was OCD. She was immaculate. I mean, my dad had brought all these pieces from all over the world in this house. She had designer furniture. You could eat off her floor, literally. That's that's how my mother was. My mom, too. It was amazing. It was amazing to see their response to what kind of china they ate off of that night. I remember that because I came in for a baseball game and left out. It was interesting just to see. Now, that particular pastor ended up being very good friends with my father. What do you think they were expecting, a shotgun shack? I, I don't know. Um, you know, like the stereotype is, all black people are dirty. And I don't know if they really understood this man had done so many years in the Navy. I mean, he, he was accomplished in what he mm-hmm. did. He was a trailblazer. But, yeah, it was amazing. It was just the, ma- the mindset that you grow up with if you're taught that stuff. Even in college, as a young man, my college baseball coach was – he had some choice words, you know, st- stupid stuff. Smile so I can see you out there on a night game, you know, playing baseball. Um, I can't see you, Brown. Smile. Oh, you got jokes, really? He'd make jokes about watermelon. I think okay. Huffington- I Go know ahead. that's inappropriate, but right. why is that inappropriate? Because not all black people like watermelon. It's a stereotype. <laughs> you know, I know more white people that like fried chicken. And in fact, the roots of fried chicken are in England. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's been it's been proven, you know, it's the English really created fried chicken, you know, just stupid stuff. You know, like, I don't know why white folks don't get the whole black place thing. It, it's you're making fun of us. It's not, yeah. you know, I don't go around in white face, do I? Right. It's just stuff like that. It's just ignorant. and It's not yeah. it's not conducive to accepting people. And like my parents always raised me, they said, let me tell you something. God created everyone. You come into this world the same way. You die the same way. And it's funny. You can take one organ and stick it in one person and it'll work just fine regardless of the color of their skin. Hmm. And we're all going to die. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're going to bust hell wide open. That was my mom. <laughs> she just, that, that's how she was. <laughs> she very blunt. shoots straight, right? Yeah, she was something else. So, so it's almost like when we have those stereotypes and mm-hmm. we make jokes about them, it's almost as if... We've never really had a friend who's who looks different from us, right? Because otherwise we would know. Right. Or, or we keep our social boundaries around that. I've always grown up with a hodgepodge of different people. I just like diversity. My sister, wow, she's got international flavor. Um, her first husband, God rest his soul, was Nigerian. His funeral was really cool. I got to officiate that. And you saw every color under the sun at his funeral. Mm. That let me know what kind of man my brother-in-law was. Mm. He would always say, bro, you have stupid people in the world and you have good people in the world. Stay away from these stupid people. That that was his (laughs) thing. I mean, the man spoke five languages, did international business. And he would always say either you were a, a great person or you were just trash. And it was really based on your mindset. And how you went about your business. And he grew up in a dirt floor um, in Nigeria. And he was dark, dark, dark. But the man was brilliant. And he broke every stereotype possible, too. Awesome man. I miss him. It's been 11 years now since he passed. But awesome man. And he just saw people for people. Yeah. 
I'm going to skip forward just a little bit. So you college baseball, which is awesome. I knew you were awesome because I love baseball. I love baseball, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's just great. But you said something, and, and the thing that really got my attention that day when I heard you speaking, you said, and I'm like, boy, let's just let's bust the gates of this conversation wide open. Right. <laughs> you said that you found more racism in the church oh, yeah. than in the Air Force. So let's start with racism in the Air Force as an officer. Not as prevalent. Most people respect you for your abilities and who you are and respect the rank. You would find every once in a while what my dad was saying was an old redneck who didn't like you because that's where they were from. At that time, diversity in the officer corps was growing tremendously. The Air Force has a great history of black officers. It always has had. You know, if you go through Arlington, you'll see a lot of historical markers for black officers and who they were, and a lot of them are Air Force. The Navy has a few. Did that begin with the Tuskegee Airmen? Tuskegee Airmen, yes. Yeah. I actually have a book on my coffee table in the living room about every black American serviceman who's ever won the Medal of Honor. And I got that on a trip this spring. We took all of the kids up to D.C. here at the school, and I got that out of the Marine Corps National mm -hmm. Museum. Very interesting book. I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. I did not find a ton of racism. A lot of it helps. I was all over the world in different nations, especially in Europe. You didn't get it too much stateside. If you went off base, certain places you would, depending on where that duty station was at. But I was insulated from a lot of it. The church, however, yeah, I've been attacked as a teenager in, in, in a church for my choice of dating. Yeah, we touched on that a little bit. Yeah. My selection of young ladies to date was kind of limited to nothing but white young ladies at the church. I have ran into more prejudicial stereotyping of what a black minister is in this part of my life as a former senior pastor, associate pastor, chaplain. Yeah, I've ran into more in the church where it's all right for us to sit in the pews, but they don't want to put you in the pulpit. I, when I took the senior pastorate at a church in Clarksville, Tennessee, I was told by a couple, we think you're a man of God. We believe you're called to preach the gospel, but we don't think God called us to sit underneath a black man. That was interesting. I've also had conversations recently within the last calendar year with a couple of people that their defense of having blacks out in front at the church was, well, he's the first person you see coming in the parking lot. I'm like, oh, we good enough to park your cars, but we ain't good enough to preach from the pulpit or sing on the praise and worship team, which I've never seen where people didn't think black folks couldn't sing um, at a church. But that was a new one. We're good enough to Dude, park your cars, but we're not good enough to be in the pulpit. What is wrong with us? Uh, we live in a fallen world. It's the enemy. It's sin. God was never in a division. The only thing God wants to divide is sin. He wants sin out of the picture. But we brought sin into the picture with rebellion. So I have to remind myself we live in a fallen state. That's why Jesus had to come down the cross. and He just wanted unity. 
it kills the effectiveness of the church is because we're not unified. Some of that came up at the CR conference. And I'm sure I, I scared poor John when he saw me sitting Eklund, over there a year yeah. or two. Yeah. I don't think so. I, I didn't sense that. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. I don't know him that well. Well, but, last year yeah. I kind of spooked him because somebody said something and it just tweaked me. For the first time in a long time, it tweaked me. And I cannot mm-hmm. remember for the life of Oh, I think it was Black Lives Matter. And it was somebody, you know, went on a tangent about all lives matter. Da, 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 it doesn't really. And I'm like, how can you say that? If you see the history of black folks in America, can you walk us through that? Walk us through the difference between Black Lives Matter and All okay. Lives Matter, because that kind of builds on yeah. the conversation, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And when you say All Lives Matter, yes, All Lives Matter, but we're trying to draw attention to what's happened to a certain demographic of our community. All Lives Matter, yes. All people need to eat, but some of us make a lot more money and have bigger freezers than some of us that are in the <laughs> soup kitchen line, right? Yeah. There is a proportionate, a disproportionate amount of blacks who have experienced police brutality. All you have to do is look at the prison system. I'm thankful that President Trump signed that bill because it was warped. We've always discussed that. So when we say we just had the discussion about me having a conversation with my sons. My CEO has five sons. He's an excellent father. Jeremy's an excellent father. Jeremy sat here one day and we had the conversation because he's known my kids since they were itty bitty. He has never had to have that conversation with his five sons. He looked at me. He's like, I can't fathom having that conversation. Vince. I'm like, no, Jeremy, you don't have to. So that's when we say black lives matter. There's always been a sliding scale in this nation that black males, especially not just black females, but black males, we've always been looked at more on an animalistic term that we're less than a full man. Even when they were put in the Constitution together, we were considered less than a full, quote unquote, Caucasian male. We have always been stereotyped as we're violent. We can't control our sexual desires. We're rapists. We do everything under the sun. And the first thing people think of when you pull you up, are you smoking weed? What you got in the car? I myself am 48 years old, almost 49, and I've never smoked a blunt in my life. So I just blow your stereotype out the water. There are certain things I've never done. I've done my, my due diligence of being a heathen, but I've never smoked weed. I've never snorted cocaine. I've done none of that stuff. That's what we're talking about with Black Lives Matter. When your first reaction is to snatch. Now, some folks are dumb. If the officer gives you a command, follow the command. Don't sit there and be argumentative because you're already going to get him fired up. His blood pressure is boiling. Yours is boiling. But there are some occasions that it's just been blatant. I think about the South Carolina incident with the gentleman that just had um, a misdemeanor out for child support. And he was running away from the officer. And as opposed to running chase, this is an older black gentleman. He wasn't going to hurt anybody. He opened fire and shot the guy, and then he planted a weapon. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about. If I was a Caucasian guy, that probably would have never happened. I wouldn't have been profiled in my parents' neighborhood if I was white. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be followed around a retail establishment if I were white. That's what we're talking about, Black Lives Matter. We just want a black life to matter. And I'm not a member 
of Black Lives Matter, I just understand the concept because mm-hmm. I've been there and done that. We just want the respect of a black life that is given to anyone else of a different culture or race. That's all it comes down to. And every organization has a crack pot or two that just takes it to the total extreme. Mm-hmm. But that's what it means. So at my church, mm-hmm. we have multi-campuses. One is our North Fort Smith campus. And I know that you have lived in this area yep. and you're familiar with how things break out. But it's largely African-American. We have an African-American pastor who, awesomely enough, is part of the rotation on the main campus, and he actually did the sermon this past week. He's an awesome guy, and it is so much fun when he speaks because now all of a sudden, on our Sunday morning service, not everybody's white. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And recently, our lead pastor spent 20 minutes in the announcements preaching a sermon about racism because there were three separate incidents that happened that showed racism in our church. And one of them was something that you just spoke about. It's because there was a young man who had been adopted Everyone loves him. He was accepted into the youth group. And at some point, one of his best friends, who is a girl growing up, they're teenagers, and he decides he wants to to date her, and Mm -hmm. she wants to date him. They had the whole family conversation. First time I've ever seen our lead pastor so angry that his voice was shaking Mm. to denounce that and to... He used the word lament a lot that he talked about how frustrating it must be for members of our black congregation to have to continually repeat what you and I are talking about. Is right. It's got to be so frustrating for you to listen to dumb questions from someone white like me who has privilege and is just now getting convicted that I've been looking at this wrong and there's just this deep sense of regret. How difficult is that for you? It depends. It's not really difficult because I'm starting the older I get, the more I understand why God placed me, where he's placed me. Even here when we have parents tour, and this is not cheap, it's kind of funny when they come tour, they assume I'm the cook and then they find out I'm the program director and how much influence I have with the staff and how much responsibility my boss has placed on me to help run this organization. It's really funny. The frustration comes in when people don't want to ask the questions or just assume that they're right and they've never walked in your shoes. It's joyful to see people come want to talk about it. And like, hey, teach me, because I don't know. I've been ignorant this whole time. Teach me. Teach me. What's going on with that? So it's not frustrating to talk to you. It's refreshing. Mm. It's refreshing to see CR. And I really pray for Cheryl and the initiative to take that on and say, hey, this is an issue that needs to be discussed. Let me clarify this real quick. Cheryl Luke has been on the Reboots podcast before. She is the national director at Celebrate Recovery for Cultural Communities. Communities. 
Reboots episode R040 features Cheryl Luke. Now, Cheryl is a minister, and she was thrust into the 12 steps of Celebrate Recovery as a function of her job. And much to her surprise, she learned through the process of working the steps and teaching the steps that she was, in her words, utterly broken. And that's how you and I met was this this conversation about how messed up it is that in Celebrate Recovery, where we talk about everybody is welcome and most people look like me and not you. Yeah. And trust me, it's some jacked up black folks out there that need Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're looking at them. You're looking at them. <laughs> Former alcoholic, 19 years clean. But yeah, recovery doesn't have a color. This year was better than last year at the, at the summit in Nashville. Last year, it was pretty empty with, with people of color. I'd like to see a lot more Hispanics, too. Yeah. There's all kinds of hangups and hurts in the Hispanic community, too. One of my favorite comments at Summit in that breakout session was, not everybody sings Hillsong. <laughs> no. No, they don't. I mean, and here's the thing. If you go around the world, which I've been had the privilege of preaching the gospel in different places, in different venues, when we went to the Bahamas, it was a couple of us that were of African descent, so to speak. There was a brother, Bishop um, Emmanuel Might, Apostle Emmanuel Might. From, um, he's got the largest charismatic church in Dublin, Ireland, I do believe. He's originally from Cameroon. Mm. That brother can preach, man. Mm. But we were in the Bahamas, man. It was like a homecoming for me because we traced our ancestral roots down there, me and my sister did. Mm. And it's really cool to see how they praise the Lord. And I'm like, really? I mean, they were amazed at how they just praise the Lord and go at it. And you can feel the Holy Spirit drop. It's always awesome to see how different cultures praise God. Not everybody sings Hillsong. And I think people don't understand the black church because it was the only place black folks during slavery times, the civil rights movement, everything there, black folks could be black folks and nobody came in and told us we couldn't do something. It's always been at the forefront because all we had was hope. And where do you find hope? In Jesus. So that's why the black church has been so strong. And that's why the civil rights movement came out of the black church. You know, and some things have come out of the white church. The push for segregation has continued out of the white church. That's why you have so many private Christian schools. They didn't want the black kids bust into the schools. I'm just being honest. People get mad at me. It's the truth. I lived it. I went to white high schools. I trust me. I I, I went to a white high school and got a great education because my dad decided he was going to kick the door in. God doesn't want color in his church because I hate to say it, but there's not going to be a little China in heaven. There isn't going to be a little Nassau in heaven. There isn't going to be a little Moscow in heaven. There's not going to be a little Tokyo in heaven. You're not going to have division in heaven. And and I don't think people realize he wants all colors and creeds. That's what the body of Christ is about. That's why he sent the apostles to the Gentiles. It wasn't just for the Jews. Hmm. Yeah, I get a little fired up when people are like, well, you know, that praise and worship. Man, look, if you're praising God, praise God. There is no, what are you going to do if you want to go to another country? Are you going to say, no, 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 you guys can't do it that way. So, yeah, that's a that's a sore subject for me as a pastor. I I like it all. 
you're, you're reminding me that I need to finish reading Woke Church. That was one yeah. of my assignments from Cheryl and John. They gave us three or four books to read, and I'm about an hour away from finishing that. <laughs> and Vince, I have a confession I found myself reading it and being incredibly engaged the first couple of hours, and I was shocked that it was so readable and that there was so much theology and so much church history from the white church and the black church and from the American church about segregation, and it broke my heart. And here's where it really broke my heart. Here's my confession is um, I realized part of the reason that I was so shocked that it brilliantly did intertwined all of those things is because the author was black mm. and I regret that, but it's a confession. He, so we're talking about stereotypes and it's so easy for me to say, what are people thinking? But I'm guilty of it too. Yeah. <sighs> this is hard Vince. Yeah, it's hard. Especially when you start stripping certain belief systems away. I mean, we look at it 12 steps. That's how we met was over celebrate recovery, but getting the truth and pulling back layers of beliefs that you've had for years or, or assumptions, I should say, I don't want to call your, your situation beliefs. I just want to call it assumptions. You just assume you didn't really dig deep into it because a lot of the stuff you say, I'm like, Oh, she cool. She just doesn't know any better. And then some folks are like, now you just wrong for that. <laughs> Do you think it's pride? Some of it, yeah, because people don't like to say they're wrong. Yeah, you talk to a guy that was pretty cocky back in the day. Yeah, I never like to admit I'm wrong. But it's something humbling about being able to say I was wrong. Yeah. You know, I haven't always been that empathetic, but the Holy Spirit has changed me over all these years that, I mean, I can empathize with people. And people look at me like, wow, how can it ain't Vince? That's for sure. Well, I just love people and, and God has given me the ability now to just look at these kids. And, you know, for the first time, we have one of the most diverse student bodies recently here. I mean, we have some young ladies from Guatemala, about three that were adopted. We have an African-American male on the boy side. We have a biracial young lady, half black, half white here. We have another African-American young lady here. We have a young lady that's half white, half Thai, mm. just really cool. We've got a cool mix. And it's really fun because you can watch these girls. I got to go house parent here in a minute. And I see these girls and the color never comes up. Now I came up last night cause we're all sitting up cracking up laughing cause they've been sun tanning out here. And the three Guatemalan girls come up and like, Mr. Vince, we're almost as dark as you are. I'm like, y'all got a ways to go before you can become chocolate thunder. I mean, we're just, and the one little biracial girl, she's the palest one out of all of them. I said, you going to join us in this? She's like, no, no, I'm not going to burn myself. She probably burned. So we laugh about that. But to see the kids get along and to get this generation past that stereotype, because a lot of the, the kids haven't been around a black male. They have the stereotype of what they see on BET and in movies and music and sports and athletics. And then they see a guy like me. Yeah, I like to listen to rap too, but I also like to listen to jazz. I like to listen to rock. You know, I like to listen to album rock. I like to listen to all types of things. Mm. And to see me throw a curveball to their stereotype, it's kind of cool. But then they mm. think they assume my wife because she's so well put together. 
how would she marry a black guy from the stereotype? Mm. So, yeah, it's interesting. One of these days you'll have to have Dana on your your podcast. Yes. She's got interesting stories, yes. too. I loved talking to yeah. her. So before I let you go, I, I know you've got other duties, but let's kind of crack open the being a parent of biracial kids. Oh. That's got to be a challenge. Yeah. I think the best lesson I ever learned from my parents was to edify your child going out the door and tell them who they are in Christ Jesus first and then what society sees them as. Of course, I, I think I alluded to it earlier. Me and Dana have five kids. We're the, I call us the biracial Brady Bunch because we're previously, <laughs> both of us were previously married. All five of our kids are biracial, half black, half white. Of course, the oldest is 31. The youngest is 20. Three boys, two girls. Four out of the five have always identified as being black. My youngest daughter, Summer, went through a struggle where she moved from one high school to another in Tennessee. She went from Murfreesboro, which is a progressive college town, MTSU, home of the MTSU, and she went to a little town called Shelbyville, and she was the only little black girl there. And if you saw my daughter walking in Walmart, you would stop. That's how stunningly beautiful she is. I mean, knock dead gorgeous. All our kids are. Summer always says, well, I'm a white like mom. And I'm like, Summer, society sees you as a little black girl. And you'll learn that one day. I, I was heartbroken to see how my daughter came face to face with it. Um, and some of the names that she was called and ridiculed at that high school. And it sent her on a bad path. That wasn't the only thing, but. Hopefully one day she'll come out of that path. She took a different tack. Our youngest son, Tyler, is a hot mess. And I know you want to hear this story, so I'm going to tell it. I've always raised Tyler to accept who he is as a black man, understand how society sees him, but know who the heck you are. You're not defined by your blackness or your whiteness. You're just defined on what kind of man you are with integrity and character. If everybody else is ignorant, that's on them. Tyler has a different sense of humor. He's a very serious kid. Well, he's a man now. Um, but during his high school football days here in Madison County, he was the only black kid on the football team, only black male in the high school. And uh, one particular night, I can't remember who they were playing, West Hendersonville, I do believe. He had an interception, and I missed the game, but his mom was there. And he, uh, he took it all the way back, almost 90 yards. And he got pushed out of bounds at the two-yard line. His mom was telling me, and he was in his room, and I went in his room and said, so what happened, son? Why didn't you take it to the house? I thought you were going to get that defensive touchdown tonight. And he looks at me as only Tyler can look at me. Here's this chiseled, good-looking kid, and he looks at me as dad. The brother in me wanted to score, but the white guy in me just couldn't get it done. And I <laughs> rolled. I'm not, I'm not used to Tyler joking like that. And me and his mom are just stunned. And then I start cracking up laughing and we're rolling and we're laughing. And every time I tell that story, either people are shocked or they die laughing. You heard me tell that story at the summit. And some people are like, did he really say that? And everybody else is rolling in the floor. And I still laugh about it because that's when I figured Tyler had really figured it out. He had really figured it out. And he's embraced his blackness, you know. He's not ashamed of his little blonde-headed, blue-eyed white mom. But he understands society. Going through the gauntlet of the prejudicial behaviors of others at that high school and some of the stupid things that were said to my child the week before he graduated from high school. He's not an emotional kid. I haven't seen him really cry except maybe twice 
since he was 14, he had a little head trauma from an accident, um, changed his personality a little bit. But to see him cry from all the pent up frustration of what he embraced and share with me. And I just looked at my son. I said, son, I know what you went through. Why didn't you tell me it was that bad? And I would have protected you to see that in your child and that he had to go through the same garbage you went through. That's what upsets me, that things haven't changed that much. The ignorance has not changed that much. But he's a better man for it because now he understands who he is and that people can't dictate or break him. He is Tyler, and he knows who he is. Wow. Thank God for the 12 steps in recovery uh, when you've got to deal with pain like that that's happened to you and to have to watch your kids go through that, right? Yeah. It's tough, but... You persevere. What doesn't break you makes you strong. And uh, he's a strong young man. Very proud of him. One of the most powerful takeaways I got from that one-hour session, and I've coming back from Summit, I've talked more about that one hour mm-hmm. than the entire rest of our experience, and it was spectacular. But probably one of the most powerful takeaways, besides the book recommendations, was what John Eklund said was, and this is for my recovery listeners, some of the rest of you might not quite understand it, but kind of bear with us for a second. When John said, what would happen if we gave ourselves as a Celebrate Recovery community permission to work through step studies by saying, my struggle is pain caused by um, racism? Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I experienced that. Um, We had just finished a step study here at our local church, the Rock of Asheville. I'm going to give a shout out. I'm going to name drop with with my brothers, Pete Perez, Dennis McDowell, Stephen Denman, Zach. I'm trying to think who else was in that group. Charles Lee. Yeah, that was our Mm -hmm. clique. And it came out and I was the only brother in there. Pete is biracial. He's half Yugoslavian, half Mexican. Me and him joke all the time. That's a deadly mixture. One of the most brilliant <laughs> men you'll ever meet. He's got a guy smart. He is a mentor for me. Um, he's a big brother. And um, we talked about the racism. And, and, and Dennis really was like, wow, I never thought of that. And he had apologized for certain things that had happened to me in that church, which we have great pastors. Um, Pastor Kirk and Pastor Suzette, great pastors, are always welcoming. They don't care what you are. They built that church over 30, 30 years in October. That church has been in Asheville, but it came up and they discussed some of the things. And it was really cool to see the brothers actually discuss something and say, hey, I've, I've struggled with that. And hearing me and Pete tell our stories because he grew up in Chicago and different things and then buying into it and saying, wow, I, I struggle with that. That was really awesome. So it's really comes down to the heart. But it is an issue that you're going to have to deal with because you're not going to be able to fully embrace who you are as a Christian until you can love everyone like Jesus loves everyone. You're shortchanging yourself because I'll tell you this, and and this is summing up for me. Sin is sin. Hurting people are hurting people. And you could go from one culture to the next, but certain things do not change. And that is the need for Jesus Christ for full healing and restoration of people from the, the ravages of sin. 
and to get you peace, joy, and happiness in this life, an eternal life. And that's what it comes down to. The only color I have a, a co-worker of mine, he's about three doors down, Dean Caldwell, and he always says he messes with the kids because he's in his 60s. We just had dinner with him and his wife at their home, white guy originally from Virginia. And he says, kids, there's no difference between me and Vince. We're brothers, can't you tell? And they're like, what are you talking about, old man? We're the same color. They're like, no, you're not. He's black and you're white. We're both red because we got the blood of Jesus, and that's what God sees. I can't coin it any better than Dean Caldwell has. So there you go. Well, I don't know if I I could ask a question smart enough to uh, wrap it up any better than that, my brother. Thank you so much for your time, Vince. Can somebody get in touch with you if they just kind of want to talk through some of this stuff? Or where would someone go to have a conversation like this about racism and about God? Well, they could always hit me up at Vince at WolfCreekAcademy.org or Vince and Dana, V-I-N-C-E, the letter N, Dana, D-A-N-A, at gmail.com. Um, we're on Facebook, me and my wife. It's Vincent Dana Brown, B-I-N-C-E-N Dana, D-A-N-A Brown. And that's our Twitter handle and Instagram also. So that's us. I'd be more than willing to discuss. Not always going to say what you want to hear. I'm known for that. And um, But I love you. <laughs> Vince, thank you so much for your time and your story. Well, thank you, Tracy, for giving me the honor and the privilege of joining you today. And it means a lot to me. And uh, let's get Dana on. I'm, I think you two would enjoy each other's time. So, And if you're ever in this neck of the woods or you want to come out to the mountains for a respite, come on. We got an open bedroom since we have no kids there. And I'll cook for you. We'll fatten you up and then send you back to Arkansas. Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm on it. Thank you. Thank you, my sister. I'll see you later. Y'all, I'm so grateful for Vince's time, his story, his great humor, his honesty, and most certainly his grace. It was a privilege to have met him and his lovely wife, Dana, this summer, and to know they're part of my forever family, y'all. Vince invites you to reach out to him and or Dana. We'll have the email address and Facebook links so that you can contact them in our show notes. I'm Tracy Winchell. We'll see you next time. We hope this episode has helped you in some way. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Maybe someone you care about might benefit from the Reboots Podcast. It's easy to share from our website, rebootspodcast.com. The Reboots Podcast is a production of Winchell Storyworks Incorporated, a company dedicated to helping businesses and individuals know, share, and live their stories in order to impact the world around us in a positive way and to achieve financial freedom.